Welcome to the Human of Support. I'm Mike Figueredo. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible.com. You can click the Audible link in the description box and get a free trial for one month to Audible. So go ahead and check that out. And also to boot, it's a great service. On today's episode, we are jam-packed with Bernie Sanders' videos. Uh, we've got about six to seven segments to go over with Bernie Sanders' news. It's been a busy week. Um, also, Black Lives Matter protesters have disrupted the Jeb Bush rally. Um, I forgot which state it was in, but anyways, they disrupted his rally, and they attempted to disrupt Hillary Clinton's rally, so very interesting stories. Um, I also have some more news on institutional racism and have an update on the Rakina Jones story. Um, and we also know about another unarmed African-American teenager who was shot and killed by a police officer. Officer. So that's another story that I'm going to be getting to um, throughout the hour. So stay tuned, and I hope you guys enjoy the episode. Brooklyn, one of the most progressive cities in the United States of America. So I wasn't initially sure that I was going to be able to get to the um, Seattle rally wherein Black Lives Matter protesters had shut down Bernie Sanders' event just because, I mean, I filmed the show on Friday last week and then it occurred on Saturday. And so in the meanwhile, there's been so much things that have happened um, since then. But since I'm uh, both an avid Bernie Sanders supporter and an avid Black Lives Matter supporter, I thought that you guys would probably want to hear my take on the issue. Now, I'll just straight up get into it. I disagree with um, the protesters shutting down Bernie Sanders' rally. Now, I'll preface this by saying that I actually supported uh, the event at Netroots Nation. The Netroots Nation event was mutually beneficial for both parties, both Bernie Sanders and Black Lives Matter. Now, the reason why that I say that is because I think that it made Bernie Sanders a better candidate overall. Bernie Sanders showed that he was responsive. They wanted him to name the victims so that way they can get the message out there, and he did that. He named Sandra Bland, uh, Freddie Gray. He talked about these issues more so than any other candidate and then a week later he released what specific policies that he would uh put forth to stop police brutality and institutional racism and some of those were repealing mandatory minimums uh demilitarization of police forces uh reforming use of force policies so in the end i thought it was better but when it comes to the seattle protest i don't think it was effective in the end and potentially even more detrimental to the overall message that they were trying to get across so the biggest criticism that I have is that the two protesters were unnecessarily divisive. I don't think that um, 
some of their statements were correct. So, for example, one of the girls said, if you care about Black Lives Matter as you say you do, you will hold Bernie Sanders specifically accountable for his actions. But this implies that Bernie Sanders had acted in a manner that undermines the Black Lives Movement in general, but that's not the case. He's the one candidate that's going to bolster the Black Lives Matter cause. Since the Netroots Nation event, I think he's done so much better. I mean, he's been tremendous on the issue. And this is why a lot of individuals within the Black Lives Matter movement, such as Deaver and McKesson, have been supportive of Bernie Sanders and have been retweeting um, some of the things that he's been saying on Twitter and whatnot. So now they also implied that the audience there was racist. In an interview with This Week in Blackness, one of the girls had said that, how is this crowd different than the KKK? So here's the deal. Your message is not going to resonate with the crowd if you attack them and call them racist. If you really thought that it was necessary to disrupt this event, well, then you could have at least been a lot less argumentative. Now, this gets into respectability politics, and I don't think that marginalized minorities need to be respectful of people just to gain white approval. I think that if being disrespectful um, and trying to forcefully get the message out will be effective, then by all means, you should do that. Um, and I think you're even obligated to do that. But in this case, with this particular instance, I think that being o overly divisive and argumentative actually detracted from your message. And it's because the crowd was probably thinking, wait, we actually agree with you. We have the same message. We stand by you. And they may not have been receptive to your message at that particular protest because they disagreed with your tactics, but they're probably thinking, why are you calling us out? See, before Bernie even had the chance to speak, you threatened to, quote, shut this bitch down if you didn't get to speak. Now, you didn't have to approach Bernie Sanders in that manner because the first thing that he tried to do when you jumped up on stage was he tried to shake your hand. So you could see there that you have an ally. You don't have to be as aggressive with your tactics. But I mean, if he was going to not let you speak and if he was going to um, not be receptive to your message, then sure, up the ante a little bit. But that wasn't the case and you didn't need to do that. It was unnecessary. Bernie Sanders supporters are going to be the most receptive to uh, your message. But it doesn't matter what the crowd is or uh, what they believe in, what their political ideology is or political orientation is. No crowd is going to be receptive to your message if you just get up there and throw shit in their faces. So I think if you were less aggressive, the crowd probably would have actually been more receptive to your message. So now a second problem that I have is that in the same interview that I mentioned with This Week in Blackness, they were asked whether or not um, they were worried that in, uh, in hindsight, this event could potentially hurt the aggregate Black Lives Matter movement. And uh, the response was, I don't give a fuck. Okay, well, if that's the case, then you must not really care about police brutality and institutional racism because it looks like you're being an opportunist. It looks like you're trying to use the Black Lives Matter platform as a stepping stone to kind of bolster your own career as an activist and gain notoriety for yourself. Now, I don't think that's the case, but that's what people are going to think when they hear you say things like that. Look, if you really want to stop institutional racism, I think you should do everything in your power to do so. We all should be fighting for this cause, but you want to make sure that your message doesn't get lost in the process. And I think that you didn't do that in this case. I think you actually diverted people away from the message, which is a problem because Black Lives Matter has one of the most important uh, messages in the political field today. So in the end, I think that the protest was not politically pragmatic and the tactics that they used were overly divisive and instead of educating allies they decided to attack them now 
look, I, I don't disagree with their message. I support their cause and Bernie Sanders supports their cause. But it's just the tactics that were problematic. Now, it's great. They are actually doing something. They're getting off their butts to stop institutional racism. But I mean, we've got to combat this problem in a manner that's going to be the most effective so we can really affect change. Now, you want to make alliances and build coalitions, not burn bridges. That's the main goal. Now, going through all the comments online, this event turned a lot of people off to the aggregate Black Lives Matter movement. But if you're Bernie supporter and a progressive in general, don't be turned off to the movement. These were just two individuals. There aren't they aren't even technically associated with Black Lives Matter. They're actually part of a group called Outside Agitators 206. But I mean, I don't even think that matters. Uh, a lot of other people were saying that um, they're funded by uh, George Soros um, and that they're just Hillary Clinton plans. I don't. I don't agree with that. And I don't even care about that. I just want people to get the message out about Black Lives Matter. But I just think that this wasn't practical. Now, like, here's the deal. I can't tell um, these two protesters what to be angry about. I can't tell them to control their emotions. I can't tell them to be um, respectful. All I can do as an ally is try to listen to the message and try to do my best to objectively further the cause of their message. I have intersectional identities as well. I'm an atheist. I'm gay. I'm Hispanic. Now, even though I'm Hispanic, that doesn't necessarily mean that I could speak out on behalf of African-American issues with authority because I benefit from white privilege. I mean, I look white. Most of the time, people just think I'm Italian. But that's not the case with my parents. Um, they faced a lot of racism and they shared their stories with me. And obviously that resonated with me. So I'm always worried about um, minority interests, no matter what the group is, um, if it's an ethnic or racial minority, or if it's a sexual minority or religious minority. But with that being said, I've read some op-eds on the Huffington Post, for example, that have said that um, white liberals shouldn't judge at all whether the tactics of uh, black activists are actually effective. But I reject that because you can't put yourself above criticism. That's a conservative tactic. That's not a tactic that us progressives use. Black Lives Matter is a progressive movement, and that's not what they've been using thus far. They haven't put themselves above criticism. They've just been trying to get the message out there. So you can't tell people to shut off critical thinking on one issue. That's unreasonable. But that goes both ways. Bernie Sanders supporters shouldn't shut off criticism from Black Lives Matter and say that Bernie Sanders is untouchable and you can't critique him because I disagree with that as well. And I think that debate, uh, discussion, dialogue are all really important because I've gained some valuable insight from allies. So, uh, for instance, I've heard straight people tell me, look, Mike, I think that when uh, gay men go to gay pride parades and wear assless chaps and have dildos hanging off their hats and stuff, I think that that makes them look bad and hurts the movement. And I think that that's a totally agreeable point. Now, again, I disagree with respectability politics. I don't think that someone from a marginalized group should have to be respectful um, and try to gain um, approval from the group who is the majority. But at the same time, I prioritize getting the message out of equality. So the point that I'm trying to make is that you shouldn't attack individuals that are your closest allies. And if you're going to critique them, if you're going to try to attack them, then you should do it in a manner that's going to be effective because Bernie Sanders is more receptive to your message than any other politician. So you didn't need to go up there and yell in his face and threaten to shut this bitch down because he was going to let you speak. Now, as Kyle Kulinski pointed out on Secular Talk, what they're doing by shutting down Bernie Sanders, in effect, is the bidding of corporations and billionaires because they too want to shut down Bernie Sanders. So the bottom line is this. Bernie Sanders is with you, 
black progressives, white progressives, and all progressives need to be united on this issue and stand together. So Bernie has already supported the Black Lives Matter cause before the Netroots Nation incident. Um, he immediately adjusted his campaign to accommodate many of their concerns. Bernie Sanders wasn't just paying them lip service. The protesters probably didn't know that the very morning before they protested him, he hired Simone Sanders as his press secretary, who was a Black Lives Matter activist. And three weeks before that, he was already in talks with her, um, and she was counseling him on how to reach out to Black Lives Matter activists. Now, in the end, I think that this wasn't an effective protest. Now, people will dispute that, and rightfully so. They'll say, look, but the very next day, he released a platform to stop institutional racism. I covered it on the show. But the fact of the matter is that he already released it the week after the Netroots Nation incident. He didn't codify it and put it on his website, which he should have done in the first place. But the fact remains that um, they say that he still he did it anyway because of the protest. But that's something that you can't really prove. It's a very comprehensive list. He tackles institutional racism from four different points. So in the end, I support Black Lives Matter 100%. It's a decentralized organization. You can't control or predict what different types of chapters will do or different type of individuals who identify with the movement will do but in the end i'm all about furthering the movement and getting the message out there and i just think that this overall diverted people away from the main message and now i think we just need to get back on topic and um, just stay focused on the black lives matter cause and make sure that we're forcing these politicians to put forth policies that will end uh, institutional racism. So I hope that they now target uh, other politicians on not just the Democratic side, but the Republican side as well. Now, they've already uh, targeted Jeb Bush and Hillary Clinton, but I think that they should do more until they put out a criminal justice reform um, proposal. Bernie Sanders did that. So I think that if you really want to now affect change, you got to help him get elected and you can meet with him to tell him how to do that, and how to reach out to Black Lives Matter. So that's my take on it. Um, you can agree with it. You can disagree with it. I just ask that people be uh, respectful because progressives, uh, Bernie Sanders supporters, and um, Black Lives Matter activists, they're both on the same side. We stand together. So we shouldn't be arguing. We shouldn't be fighting. We just have to make sure that we further both Bernie Sanders' campaign and the Black Lives Matter message. As you all know, Bernie Sanders' Seattle rally was shut down by two women purporting to be with Black Lives Matter. Donald Trump had some really interesting comments to say about it, so I'm going to let you hear him out, and then I'm going to give you my opinion on his take on the issue. One more question. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I would never give up my microphone. I thought that was disgusting. That showed such weakness. The way he was taken away by two young women, the microphone, they just took the whole place over. And the audience, which liked him, I mean, they were him. They're saying, what's going on? How can this happen? That will never happen with me. I don't know if I'll do the fighting myself or if other people will, but that was a disgrace. The way they took, I felt badly for him, but it showed that he's weak. You know what? He's getting the biggest crowds and I'm getting the biggest crowds. We're the two getting the crowds. But believe me, that's not going to happen to Trump. Okay, so I completely disagree with him. Um, I don't think that that makes Bernie Sanders look weak at all because i mean look you're in a lose-lose situation either way i mean if you try to take the microphone back or escort them out then you're going to look like you don't care about their issue but i mean if you let them speak then you're going to get criticized by people like donald trump for looking weak so what do you do in that situation the best thing is to actually just hear them out see i don't know if donald trump was joking about like actually trying to fight them off um i don't think he was actually saying he'd get into like a physical fight with them but i don't know if he's saying um that he'd actually try to do something and get them off stage because i mean what are you gonna do donald you're gonna manhandle them 
Are you going to pick these two women up and carry them out? What can you do in that situation? Nothing, really. I mean, I think that Bernie Sanders um, did what he could in the situation, given the fact that, I mean, he wasn't prepared for that. I mean, if you're not prepared by this and it catches you off guard, what's the best way to react? Well, peacefully. Don't try to grab them and throw them off the stage, regardless if you disagree with, with what they're saying. So now the only way to actually prevent this type of protest or disruption from happening is to bully Hillary Clinton and completely cut yourself off from any voters. Don't let them get to you. Have a group of Secret Service agents or security guards surrounding you. And then if you do that, well, you never have to worry about it. But that's not the type of person that Bernie Sanders is. When the girls jumped on the stage, what did Bernie Sanders try to do first? He tried to shake their hand. And then uh, while they were speaking, as he was leaving and whatnot, he went and he was shaking the hands of individuals within the crowd. And guess who was there protecting him? Nobody. He had his kind of little entourage with him, but they weren't like guarding him away from the individuals. He was able to get to them. They were able to access him and shake his hand and talk with him and whatnot. So he's not going to isolate himself like Hillary Clinton. He's not a billionaire like Donald Trump to where he has a group of people around him protecting him. Now, look, I don't know if that's the case with uh, Donald Trump, if he has a security entourage, but that's certainly not the case with Bernie Sanders, obviously. So what's the bottom line here? Look, it doesn't make Bernie Sanders look weak at all. I think that this just really was something that Donald Trump wanted to talk about because it plays into his narrative of being a straight-talking tough guy. And look, confidence, it really does win over voters. So if he says this, look, nobody's going to do that to me. Nobody's going to take over the microphone at my event. Then I think people are going to like him for it and um, he's going to be praised for it because it makes him look tough. It makes him look confident. But I mean, in the end, disagree with him about the whole Bernie Sanders thing. It doesn't make Bernie Sanders look weak. Um, I think that I would have done the same thing as Bernie Sanders. Because, I mean, if somebody is coming to you and uh, they're passionate about this, regardless if, if you disagree with their tactics, I mean, what can you do? I mean, as I said, you're not going to manhandle them. You're not going to try to pick them up and throw them off the stage. So Donald Trump is just ridiculous. So Black Lives Matter protesters decided to disrupt a Jeb Bush rally. Take a look. racial injustice, racial inequalities, institutional racism, um, 
Are you going to be talking to uh, the different police departments about training uh, reform? Um, and you talk about creating a better education system, but if the kids in the, in the uh, neighborhoods are seeing their fathers and brothers and cousins getting killed, <laughs> why would they want to go to school and excel if that so you you take the time to give this long drawn out question and then you're like bye you don't get to retort you don't get to respond to it at all i'm just gonna leave now bye see you later see you never <laughs> oh okay where do i start that was a terrible answer terrible terrible answer i give you a zero out of ten jeb bush because that just proves that you didn't even think about the issue of police brutality or institutional racism at all i mean Education, he says, is the most important way to ameliorate police brutality. But I mean, look, Sandra Bland was educated, yet she was still assaulted by a police officer and then later died in police custody. So how is it the case that education is going to stop officers from, one, killing unarmed African-American people, 
Two, assaulting them. And three, ignoring them so that way they die in police custody. Five African-American women died in police custody just in the month of July alone. So you can't say that uh, education is going to be the end all to stopping institutional racism because that's not the case. And you're really glossing over all of the nuances and not even diving into it at all. So I was really hoping that um, the protesters would challenge him in the way that Martin O'Malley and Bernie Sanders were challenged. But look, he left. He was not having any of that. He bounced out of there as quick as he could. So I think that had he stayed, he he probably would have been challenged more. Now, this is why Republicans, I mean, they don't represent the people at all. I mean, look, Democrats, they don't really represent us very well, too. But Republicans are just so far removed from the everyday American people. Jeb Bush... He, I don't think he ever thought about what he could do to ameliorate police brutality and institutional racism. What he's thinking about is, who am I going to give a tax break to first when I get in office? Donor A or Donor B? That's what he's thinking about. That's what all the other Republicans are thinking about. Because out of all the uh, GOP candidates, all, out of all the Democratic candidates, he's raised more money than any of them. That's over $100 million. I think it's actually $114 million, if I'm not mistaken. So, of course... He has this ulterior motive. He's thinking only about appeasing his donors, and that's very, very clear. He doesn't care about racism because he clearly hasn't thought about it. At least when it comes to, like, Bernie Sanders, the Black Lives Matter protesters called him out at Netroots Nation because they said, although he's great on economic um, issues uh, of racism, well, he hasn't spoken, uh, spoken enough about what he would do to ameliorate police brutality. Now, he did speak about it in the past, but I mean, he just wasn't speaking out enough about it, which is what uh, they contended, and I agree with that. But it's made him a better candidate. So let's see if this actually takes hold with Jeb Bush. Is he going to be a better candidate because of this? Is he going to actually think about institutional racism and what he could do to stop it? I'm not a betting man, but if I had to bet... My money is on him not caring at all. So I'm glad that um, Black Lives Matter has challenged him. I hope that they challenge every candidate because, look, this is an issue that regardless of your party, um, Republican, Democrat, you need to think about it. You need to take it up and you need to come forward with a proposal of what you're going to, to do to stop it. So I'm glad that they did this. But Jeb Bush, man, you show just how out of touch you are. The Boston chapter of Black Lives Matter attempted to interrupt Hillary Clinton's speech. However, they arrived late and weren't able to actually hear her speak at all. However, they did actually get to meet with her for about 15 minutes. Thank you. The peace that's most important, and I, I, I stand here in your space, and I say this as respectfully as I can, but if you don't tell black people what we need to do, then we won't tell you all what you need to do. Well, I'm not telling you. Right? I'm just telling you to what tell I, me. What I mean to say yeah. is that this is and has always been a what problem of violence. It's not, there's, there's not much that we can do to stop the violence against us. Well, if, if that is a conversation the, that I push okay, back. Okay, I understand. And I understand what you're saying. And also respectfully. Yeah. Well, respectfully. respectfully, if that is your position, then I will talk only to white people about how we are going to deal That's with the very I mean. real That's problems. That's not what I mean. That's not what I mean. No. But like what I'm saying is you, you what you just said mm -hmm. was a form of victim blaming. Right? You were saying that what the Black Lives Matter movement needs yeah. to do to change white hearts is No, I'm not talking about I, Look, change. I don't believe you change hearts. I believe you change laws, you change allocation of resources, you change the way systems operate. You're not going to change every heart. You're not. But at the end of the day, we can do a whole lot to change some hearts and change some systems and create more opportunities for people who deserve to have them to live up 
to their own God-given potential to live safely without fear of violence in their own communities, to have a decent school, to have a decent house, to have a decent future. So we can do it one of many ways. You know, you can keep the movement going, which you have started, and through it, you may actually change some hearts. But if that's all that happens, we'll be back here in 10 years having the same conversation. Julia, because we will not have all of the changes that you deserve to see happen in your lifetime because of your willingness to get out there and talk about this. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. We've we got to go this way. Well, I'm ready to do my part in any way that I can. And I'm sure. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, overall, they indicate that they were not very impressed with what she had to say. BuzzFeed explains they did express their disappointment with the exchange on the whole. I didn't hear a reflection on her part in perpetuating white supremacist violence, Yancey said. I think she gave the answer she wanted to give. But even as the Black Lives Matter group described the various ways in which Clinton had fallen short, what remained unclear was a sharp outline of what an ideal encounter on Tuesday would have entailed. Clinton gave the activists time, they said, but not enough. She delivered thorough answers, they said, but not from the area of the heart. She validated their points, they said, but didn't offer many of her own. She did acknowledge her part in policies that haven't worked, but not enough to give away to a clarifying ability to kind of hone in, said Yancey, because again, she's a politician. That last line, uh, I think it summed it up pretty well. Hillary Clinton is the typical politician. She's not going to give you straight answers. She's going to tell you what's politically pragmatic and not what you actually want to hear. So with how much the Black Lives Matter protesters have been uh, disrupting uh, the rallies of candidates, you'd think that by now all of the 2016 candidates would have a thorough and comprehensive platform as to what they would do to eliminate institutional racism in the event they get interrupted themselves. But they're not doing that. And I don't think Hillary Clinton even thought that she would have to deal with this because she has the Secret Service protecting her. Bernie Sanders and Martin O'Malley, they're the only two candidates that are really putting their foot forward to actually reach out to the Black Lives Matter movement, to actually put forth policies that are going to do something and be effective at eliminating institutional racism. However, the problem is that Martin O'Malley, even though he's putting forth this institutional racism uh, platform, he's not going to be the best candidate. If you know anything about his tenure as the governor of Maryland, his policies were not very helpful to African-Americans. So there's that. Now, the takeaway is that Hillary Clinton is not going to be the candidate that does much for Black Lives Matter. Although she may try to pay them lip service and mention a couple policies that they want, she's too busy trying to please her corporate and billionaire donors to really even think about anyone. So I'll say the same thing about her that I said about Jeb Bush. What Hillary Clinton is trying to do and what she's thinking about is what donor am I going to appease first? Is it going to be um, Citigroup or Goldman Sachs? Which one? They both want some, so maybe I'll just appease them all. She's not thinking about what she's going to do for the American people. And that's what's troubling about plenty of these candidates in the 2016 election cycle. Bernie Sanders, by a long shot, is the only one who is actually trying to reach out to the American people. So I hope that she actually is confronted with a disruption so that way she can respond to it when she's kind of caught off guard, when she doesn't have rehearsed lines to say. But really what I want is for her to adopt a platform that includes uh, eliminating or combating institutional racism because that's what these protesters are asking for.
So Christian Taylor, an unarmed 19-year-old African-American male, was shot and killed at a car dealership in Texas. So security camera footage showed him jumping on the windshield of a vehicle at a car dealership, and then he drove his own vehicle into the building after that. So now USA Today explains... Miller, the cop that shot and killed Taylor, entered the dealership alone without establishing a coordinated response with other police officers. Now this is what the chief said. Miller gave verbal commands to Taylor, who fled toward a locked door in the building. Another officer reported seeing Taylor charging that door, trying to break it. Johnson said Miller ordered Taylor to get on the ground, and Arlington police officer Dale Wiggins, who had entered the building after Miller and was standing nearby, reported that Taylor instead began cursing and advancing toward Miller. Miller shot Taylor several times, Johnson said. So now they also stated that they noticed that he had a bulge in his pocket, but once they shot him and they checked, it was just his phone and his wallet, which I don't know how you can surmise that a square or rectangle bulge in your pocket is a gun, but either way, that's what they thought it was, apparently. So now this cop who shot him, um, the rookie cop, he was fired and he may actually face criminal charges. But as, as of yet, we don't actually know whether that's going to be the case. So Taylor's dad had uh, a really interesting thing to say about this. Who's the father of the, um, the male who was shot and killed. He says, we are all human and make mistakes and there isn't a winner in this. I'm not a man of revenge and the results can't bring back my son. So, look, I give this guy credit because if this happened to someone who I knew, I would just be completely outraged. I just have this irrational anger and be so upset that I couldn't even articulate what he's saying. So the fact that, you know, he's disforgiving already, it speaks volumes to his character. Because I don't think a lot of people would be able to do that so soon. I know I wouldn't. So he also said that the son that he remembers was not the one in the security cam video. So... We don't know what catalyzed that situation at all. We just don't have details on that. So to conclude, this is another situation yet again where an unarmed African-American was shot and killed when he or she didn't need to be. I don't understand how in all of these cases, they always just instinctively turn to their gun. I mean, if you really want to incapacitate someone and stop them from charging you, why not use pepper spray? Why not tase them? I mean... Why aren't there other methods that you turn to first? So this is why I think that not only are body cameras essential, but we have to reorient and we have to retrain all of these police officers so that way they're not just so trigger happy. I mean, if someone's charging you, if you feel like your life is in danger, use your taser, use your pepper spray. Those things are effective and they may not work in all cases, but why is it that this happens so often where unarmed African-American men are killed? We saw it with Mike Brown. We saw, we saw it now with Christian Taylor. I mean, why not turn to alternative methods to incapacitate somebody? Why do you have to shoot them? Not once, but multiple times. So a couple weeks ago, I told you guys about a woman named Rakina Jones who died in police custody. Well, I actually now have an update about her situation, but um, before I get to the update, I'm going to show you the clip where I talked about her so that way you guys get a little bit of context about the situation at hand. It was a woman named Rakina Jones who was a 37-year-old Cleveland woman and mother of one. She died in police custody two days after being arrested. So now she was arrested originally due to a domestic dispute and her sister, Renee Ashford Jones, she said this, she was perfectly fine. She didn't complain of nothing, nothing saying she was hurting or anything. She was fine. I just seen her. 
Then the next day, they called and said she was dead in jail. They checked on her, but they won't tell us nothing. Now, at the time she was arrested, she did inform police officers that she does have several medical conditions, all of which require medication. But her sister contends that she was given all of the medication as directed. So one of the guards stated that she looked lethargic in one of the days that she was in jail and she was then transported to a hospital to receive medical treatment and then back to jail because her vital her vital signs were normal now when the guards checked on her later that night she was unresponsive and raw story explains the cuyahoga county medical examiner's office performed an autopsy on jones on monday with spokesman chris harris stating there were no suspicious injuries to jones's body and that further studies were needed to determine a cause of death so really it's an open question um, as to what happened to her we have no idea okay so now here's the video that was released of her now mind you this was just several hours before she ended up dying in police custody um, she ended up dying the next morning and this was the night before so take a look I sympathize I with you. I address them about it. They, that's, they, that's that won't happen that's again. And some of it's not in there. That Alprazolam, is that? That's Xanax. That's similar to the Xanax, right? Is that yeah, off brand? Yeah, writing says. Oh, this one, okay. Well, the, the first time I got it, it said. I, I think generic, this is. Generic, yeah. Yeah, generic. this is one of the. Um, Right, but that was also have. spilled out in my uh, box by my bed. This is my sister's and I'm trying to get it to me. And yeah. the last, you weren't here. When my sister came with my daughter, Yeah. she only simply came. I'm sorry, y'all. No, no, I was trying to decide how many do you take a day? One, one, every six hours you take one. Yes, or okay. PRN, meaning as needed. Okay, as needed. I'm okay. trying to prevent an anxiety. I already had an anxiety attack. My main concern is my POTS syndrome, which is a tachycardia syndrome. When oh, okay. What's that? Layman's turn. What happens is, when I go from a sitting or standing position, yeah. I faint. And 
I've tried to eat. I feel like I have enough to eat. But that's just one side of it. Mm -hmm. The other side is the concussions to my brain and my brain aneurysm. This They had me take that uh, to try to prevent the migraines because once the migraines have, um, starts, I can't see. Or so this eat. is for your traumatic brain, brain injury or whatever. Uh, yeah, okay. all of it is actually Adderall. Okay. ADHD, okay. but yeah. No, the the big ones I'm concerned about is the Xanax one, two, and the gabapentin is a big one. Absolutely. Which and one's this Xanax? Migraine. The L. Uh, I'm pretty this sure this might depression. be the generic form of. Yeah, it is. Z uh, That's Xanax. Xanax? Uh, also, what I had told the other officers, just so you know, my I have a domestic violence advocate, and there was something. Who? Lynn Nugent. Nugent. We have a different Lynn. Yeah. I, that's what I was gonna. Changed, but she started in fourth district. I also kept that in the Louis Vuitton bag. Yeah. My victim report from before. I think her name might have been the same for a while here. I think we have a victim's advocate upstairs, and I don't think it would hurt for you, even though you're arrested in this case, to speak to our victim's a, advocate. I am a victim. Right, and I don't and my think my child is witnessing violence. I have a. Suggestion, but I, it, it's going to be up to the next lieutenant. See, we have a. She's going to be here all night in the sergeant. There's a female cell available. It's a big block. It has a phone that you can call collect on. My only concern is with your health issues. It's easier to keep an eye on you here because it's harder for you to disappear. So her words were very explicit. She said, "I don't want to die in your cell." So now she was explaining how, while that shift that you saw in the video was very nice, they were respectful, they were cordial, well, the other shift wasn't paying her that type of respect, and that she was worried for her life that potentially she would die in the cell if she didn't get the correct treatment. Now, the reason why this is the case and why she's so scared is because she had a plethora of different medical issues that needed attention, and um, she needed medication in order to treat them. So now... Maybe it's the case that the other officers on other ships were um, withholding the medication from her, but we don't really know that for sure. We don't have the evidence to back that up, so we can't necessarily make that claim just yet. But, I mean, it kind of seems like it's pointing in that direction. And the fact that she discussed how she was worried about the treatment that she was getting from the other officers, it it raises a lot of red flags. So, Jen Kuger made this point, and um, I'm going to make the same exact point. This is why... The Black Lives Matter movement is so fundamentally important because in just the month of July alone, five African-American women died in police custody. And that's just outrageous. I mean, you saw what Rakina Jones was talking about. She was saying how the officers will come in and they don't treat her respectfully and she didn't appreciate that and she wanted them to do something about it. And she also really emphasized that she needed to be monitored for her medical conditions. Now, thankfully, the officers in that video were really receptive to what she was saying. But I mean, it can't be the case that one shift treats you nice and the other shift treats you badly because the nice people can't always be there. They can't work there 24-7. So this is why we need reform. We need officers to have training and to be oriented to be a lot more sensitive to individuals with both medical and mental health issues. So now, 
you shouldn't lose all of your human rights once you're arrested. You're still a human. You still deserve to get all the medication that you are required to take as prescribed by your doctor. I mean, she paid their salary. She funded the institution itself through her tax dollars. So it shouldn't be the case that all of her civil liberties and civil rights just go out the window once she gets arrested. So look, this just really points in the direction that we really need reform these officers they need training they need to make sure that they're equipped to handle um individuals who are a lot more sensitive or, and who they're going to be they're, they're gonna have to be more attentive to their issues especially if she takes all this medication and she has all these medical issues that are potentially very dangerous now as you saw she ended up dying in police custody so clearly something went wrong maybe she was ignored again we don't have all the details but as more information is released like this video it's it's starting to become a little bit more clear